0: Hey, everyone. Uh, Really quick before we start the episode, I just wanted to say that we recorded this before all of the craziness happened uh, with the riots at the Capitol last week. So that is why we don't mention it in our serious segment today. Um, also, uh, because of that, you know, just, um, that happening on the day that I normally spend the show and doing research for the next episode, coupled with the fact that I am apparently the worst Star Fox player on the planet, uh, it's going to take us a little bit longer to get the next episode out. So look for that one, probably two weeks from this one going up. That's all on with the show. A chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo library a few games at a time. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them. Pretty much all you need to know, I am Steampunk Link. I am Emmy Zero. We're back, folks. We had our little holiday special. We took a break. Now we are are back to business as normal. It's 2021. Uh, how's, how's your year going so far,
1: Emmy? Uh, it's, it's going fine. The year is now two days old. I have not left my apartment at all during that time. I'm doing great. I don't really have anything positive or negative to say about it at this point. You know, we'll see how it goes. How's your year going so far, Steampunk Link?
0: It's going fine. I've tried playing a few more games already this year than I probably did last year. I picked up a few things from the Steam sale. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, trying to enjoy some new ish
1: games again. I am making uh, some real progress in Hades again. I was kind of up against a wall for a while, uh, stuck on the the second area boss in that. But uh, I finally managed to to beat that, that fella couple days ago, and I've made just a, a ton of progress really fast since then. So uh, yeah, I don't know if y'all have heard, but that Hades, it's, it's a good one. You should try it.
0: I have heard that Hades is a good one. I picked that one up on the Steam sale, have not played it yet because I've been uh, diving into things like Hypnospace Outlaw, which is very much my jam. It is just weird and has a retro, almost wavy aesthetic to it. So I am all about it. But yeah, I will be getting to Hades pretty soon. As well. I guess that's our week in modern gaming right there. Uh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> have you made any New Year's resolutions or even bothering with that this year? Or I'm not really bothering with that
1: this year. I'm just going to let the year take me where it, where it will, you know. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to get into better shape this year. I got that uh, that Ring Fit Adventure for Christmas and uh, I've been actually keeping up with it pretty well in the past week and a half or so so you know that's the closest thing to a New Year's resolution I've got are you doing those do you usually do those I don't even really know I've
0: thought about it in the past or you know tried to do stuff I've I've typically never really stuck with them this year it's just more about maybe just coding more trying to you know make time for just making my own little projects and stuff like that I want to find a way to kind of put stuff out there that I could share on Twitter without completely doxing myself. It is kind of tricky because, you know, the the programming stuff is more the guy who plays the character steampunk link and not the character steampunk link who is more or less the guy playing steampunk link but not entirely and it's all it's all weird sometimes, but you know, just kind of show some some neat stuff that I'm working on. But I haven't figured out a good way of doing that safely yet. But we'll we'll see.
1: Well, I wish you luck with it. I hope I hope that goes really well. Thank you. Speaking of things that are not necessarily going that well, uh, March nineteen ninety three in Super Nintendo games.
0: Yeah, we've got uh, we we got two games that I don't. <gasps> uh... so we've got one game that I've actually got a lot of good things to say about, but is completely has its legs cut out from under it by one huge flaw. And another one that's just, I don't get this, I don't know why this was made, I don't know if this was better on the original Commodore 64, where it was, you know, originally made for, I, I don't know, but... Yeah, we'll we'll get into it, yeah. We do have a, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about behind the scenes uh, for both of these games, I've managed to find a few interviews and whatnot uh, regarding both of these. Yeah, what do we want to tackle first? We've got Spin Dizzy Worlds, and we've got King Arthur's World. A lot of worlds today. Uh, let's bite the bullet, and, uh, let's talk about
1: Spin Dizzy Worlds.
0: Spin Dizzy Worlds. This, as we believe said last time, has nothing to do with the character Dizzy, the, uh, Yoke Folk, which is a shame because that probably would have been more fun. It would have at least been
1: more viable as a format for a game than what we've got here. I spent a long time trying to get my head around this thing, and, you know, I basically did. I basically got to the point where I could control it and complete levels, but it never became
0: good or fun. There were times in which I just felt like the controls actively or just the the physics of the game actively put me in unwinnable situations. Same here.
1: But we'll talk about all of that. Uh so w- would you like to go ahead and tell us about the the history of
0: Spin Dizzy and Spin Dizzy Worlds? Yeah, so Spin Dizzy was a game originally created by Paul Shirley back for Atari ST. And- and Amiga. According to Moby Games, anyway, I'm seeing versions coming out for the PC-98, the Sharp X 6800, oh, sorry, 68000, rather, the Amiga, and then, yeah, the, the Synes version, which came out years later. It came out on, on a lot of different 80s
1: microcomputers and personal computers, basically. So
0: it was originally uh, published by Activision, I believe. Actually, I'm seeing a whole lot of different companies here. I'm seeing Electric Dream Software, and um, At some point, though, Activision became involved because the creator, Paul Shirley, does not have a lot of kind things to say about Activision after the fact. So I I found this old article here. Actually, so this seems to be some kind of online book full of interviews of various video game creators from the, let's say, pre-NES era. So we're talking your Commodore 64, you know, another such computer. So, yeah, a lot of microcomputers uh, from the 80s and maybe early 90s. But, but oh, I mean, since we're dealing with pre-NES, this is all going to be 80s, maybe even late 70s for some of them. You can still read all of these on dadgum.com. So that's uh, D-A-D-G-U-M dot com. So the, the author of this is James Haig. Uh, co-founder of Dadgum Games, and uh, which is not a company I'm familiar with, but um, he's worked on, oh, hey, according to this, he worked on Bonk and another King Arthur game, King Arthur and the Knights of Justice. All right. Which is a a different game that also had a SNES release that we will talk about eventually. A lot of King Arthur games on the SNES turns out.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't really have expected that, but, uh, yeah, I guess here we are. Huh.
0: So uh, th- the things I want to talk about with Paul Shirley... Um, I just want to read his answer here to this question from James. James asks, what's the story behind the 1990s resurrection of Spin Dizzy for the Super Nintendo Spin Dizzy Worlds? And Paul's answer is this is Activision at its worst again. Spin Dizzy Worlds was in fact an Atari ST slash Amiga original game. The SNES conversion had no prior approval. I specifically vetoed it in writing. In fact, whilst it surprised me that Axie could get it working as well as it did, um, Axie, in this case, being the company that published the SNES version specifically, or, uh, sorry, developed the SNES version specifically. Uh, this port was an absolute disaster. I disown it. Outside of the UK, few people have heard of the originals, mainly because Activision UK simply closed down the day after receiving the final Masters and Source. The major marketing effort seems to have been selling the rights to Axie. Not a lot of kind words about, uh... <laughs> Activision or the video games industry as a whole.
1: Yeah, he does it sounds like he got treated pretty badly by some some major players in the games industry
0: and uh that is a shame. One other question here, if you could fix one thing about the current games industry, what would it be? He says shoot the crooks and incompetence running most of it, which is uh you know, probably something you could still say about today's game industry. <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of problems, yeah. Yeah, I believe this was um this interview happened back in 97, I think. And then there's also a blurb about him in 19, uh, from the Commodore Format Magazine, issue 22, from July of 1992. Here's what they had to say about Paul Shirley. I'm going to try and do this in a British accent, because uh, you'll understand why when I start reading it. The big, bear-swilling, beardy-weirdy bedazzled us with the quirky confusion and the whizzy-spin-dizzy Following a brief foray into the 16-bits, which resulted in a spin-dizzy sequel, the Sega Mega Drive console, Paul saw the light and is now running a pub in Lanchester.
1: Very good. Very good. I think the British accent really made that that quote survivable, both for the listeners <laughs> and for, for you reading it. So so yeah, uh, Paul Shirley, he uh, took his ball, or top in this case, and, and went home. And uh, given the experience he had, I can't really blame him, yeah.
0: Anyway, what the hell is this
1: game? This game is... I struggle to describe it exactly in terms of other games. I guess you could liken it a bit to something like Marble Madness.
0: It could easily be compared to Marble Madness, and a lot of people have, to the point where, uh, in that interview, Paul Shirley also talks about how he did create this physics engine before he knew about Marble Madness, but of course no one believes him now. uh uh-huh, Yeah.
1: It's an odd sort of isometric physics-based puzzle adventure game.
0: I guess that's how I'd describe it. You're a top. Uh you know what we're talking about. Get your mind out of the gutter.
1: Yeah, it's fine. It's it's a top. Uh not an anthropomorphized top or anything. He doesn't have eyes or a face or anything. It's just a a, a top going around these uh environments that are composed of Various levels and ramps, and uh, a lot of times there are buttons that activate elevators that will take you up or down to different levels of it. You're trying to collect items and, and get to the end of the levels, basically by using the physics that are implicit in you being a top to get around these levels. And that's more or less the basic thing here.
0: You know, I don't know how this game plays on the Amiga or any of the other systems that it was originally designed for, so I don't know if it's a much better game there, but...
1: This is not good, though. Like, the thing that they have made for the Super Nintendo is not
0: fun to play. (laughs) First of all, the Super Nintendo has not done well up to this point with games featuring an isometric perspective.
1: No, that's certainly true.
0: Yeah, it's almost like having a a D-pad with uh, up-down left-right direction controls doesn't adapt super great to a view that basically has you moving in diagonals only. Uh, An important thing to note
1: here is that unlike Qbert or Kablooey, this game is not on any kind of a grid. You're moving freely in this isometric viewpoint stage. And um, it is very, very hard to get the top to go where you want it to, I, I would say.
0: I found it really difficult to... Just even parse what it was that I was supposed to be doing to progress through the game in certain times. Like, you're supposed to go up ramps, but you can't just go up ramps. You have to build up momentum in order to get the top up the ramps. But it's not always clear, like, if I built up enough speed at this point, or how far back do I have to be? There are some areas where you actually have to jump off of ramps that I literally could not figure out. I I don't think I ever cleared some of them just because I I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to, you know, like how much speed I was supposed to be building up. It seemed like I was going as fast as I possibly could have been given, you know, the amount of room that I had to back up.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you have a button you can hold down to kind of dash, like, to kind of increase your speed. But even that is still beholden to the physics, and you do still need to have enough runway, basically, to build up to be able to do some of these jumps. And, I mean, like, one of the things that ended up really stopping me was a thing where you have to press a button by standing on it, and that, that which will make a, like, gate rise up, and then you have to maneuver to the gate and through it before it comes down. But the window of time is so strict that if you don't perfectly move your top in an arc between the button and the gate, you'll not, you won't you won't make it. And I could never master the controls well
0: enough to make that happen. So I just couldn't go forward. Yeah. And as if the controls weren't enough of an obstacle to get you through this game, you also have a Bit of a time constraint in the form of fuel. I guess this game means to try to create lore for this premise by saying your top is actually some sort of probe that is scanning the surface of a planet, but you've only got so much fuel to do all of the things that you need to do, which... Why?
1: Yeah, everything in this is like completely abstract geometric shapes. There's no reason for there to be lore, but whatever.
0: Regardless, you do have fuel. So if you run out of fuel, you lose a life. If you fall off a ledge, you lose, I think, some of your fuel, which I mean, you just I guess you could just assume that that's, you know, your your health or whatever. Like this game was difficult enough, you know, and I can I can understand like the whole challenge of the game is just sort of understanding the physics of it and getting this fiddly thing to go where you want it to. But even with that, there
1: are things here that just do not work well. Like, for example, um, you can press the shoulder buttons in a lot of levels to rotate the perspective by 45 degrees at a time. This for one thing does not always work. And for another, when it does work, it causes this really nasty hitch in the action while it like loads the new perspective. Like basically like the same kind of thing we saw in true golf classics games whenever it would load a new perspective on, on the golf course. Um, like it's like a full second and it feels really bad, but sometimes you do need to, to move the perspective to even get a sense of like what the thing you're looking at is and how to tackle it. So yeah, that's bad. There's also a thing that happened to me. I don't I don't know if this happened to you, but um, there was definitely at least two times where I got stuck after a respawn. All of the the levels in this game are kind of these platforms that are floating in in like a void. And if you fall off of one, you do lose a bit of health, but you do respawn pretty close to where you fell off. And unfortunately, because of the way the physics in this game works, a lot of times that means you'll respawn like kind of part way down a slope and have to do some very careful maneuvering to get back to like level ground so you can go anywhere else. Otherwise you'll just keep falling down the slope infinitely, losing more more fuel and respawning. It's miserable and it seems like something that absolutely could have been avoided by just being a little bit more careful with where they set the respawn points.
0: Yeah, that absolutely happened to me.
1: It's awful, and it sucks. For a physics-based game like this to to work well, you really need to have confidence that you can trust the way the game is designed to be like fair to you, and it never feels like that here. Once again, that could well just be uh, entirely the fault of a bad port, So I'm not saying anything about the original version of this game for the the other platforms it was on.
0: Like, it's hard for me to imagine a good version of this because I just don't get it in a way, you know? Like, I don't understand how this is fun.
1: My feeling is that this one would probably be better if it had a completely different kind of control scheme, like a trackball. Yeah,
0: I guess I could see that. That still doesn't sound terribly fun to me. I mean, me either, but, you know, I think that of all the ways this could exist, this is is a bad one. This is one of the worst, probably. Playing this, it, it made me think of those old Labyrinth games. Uh, only 90s kids will remember. <laughs> these probably predate the 90s. But uh, in case you aren't familiar with it, it was like a, a physical game, a wooden box in which you had these two knobs that would tilt a table that had a, a maze on it on a, two different axes. Yeah, right. And the goal was to maneuver a marble from one end to the other of the maze, but there were also like, typically holes in the board that you'd have to move around or else the marble would fall in and you'd have to start over again. It kind of made me think of that. And I I don't know. I mean, obviously I think to make something like that, you'd have to make a completely different game from what this is.
1: I mean, at that point, aren't we, aren't we kind of talking about like super monkey ball at that point? Yeah, I guess I think essentially, I think essentially the thing we want this to be is
0: actually super monkey ball. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, maybe somebody who actually has an affinity for the original Spin dizzy game on the original system would have to explain to me why it's supposed to be fun because I I just don't get it I yeah like it, as flawed as this is I don't even understand the appeal yeah a good version of this I can't come I I can I can barely even comprehend it with without completely changing what it is I did not have a, a single second of fun playing this game so I guess it is time to put this one on the list it sure is so you mentioned. Kablooey, right? Yes. That's kind of where I was thinking, like a good place to start with this one, because that's also a pretty loathsome game, in my opinion. I agree with that. On the one hand, I would vote for putting this below it, because at least with Kablooey, I can kind of understand the premise of what its puzzles are going for. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. On the other hand, I think that you could maybe put this higher because Kablooey is just so obnoxious, like, with its presentation and its yeah. music and everything, that in a way that Dizzy Worlds wasn't.
1: Get, get, get ready!
0: Yeah, that.
1: I made it further in Kablooey. Kablooey felt more playable to me than this. Yeah, But, yeah, I agree. I find Kablooey just viscerally unpleasant, in a way.
0: Uh, again, like, I can conceive of that being fun as a puzzle in a way that I kind of don't with spin dizzy no so i think it drops below kablooey it probably drops below Zardion as well at 137 so yeah i think that's fair i'm just gonna skip romance of the three kingdoms too entirely <laughs> uh tko championship boxing kind of a nothing game yeah, that might actually be the floor for this one for me what do you think
1: i think probably yeah i mean that game is just not trying really to do anything it's not really succeeding either but i can at least appreciate the ambition probably for for spin dizzy worlds over that game
0: yeah i think this maybe is our new 138 between zardion and tko championship boxing sounds good to me so congratulations spin dizzy worlds our new number 138 out of uh where are we at right now? Is that, was that one 160 right there? Yeah, 160. Wow, what an auspicious
1: uh, game to bring us to, to 160.
0: Yeah, and now the lowest rated game of 1993 by a pretty good margin. It's Hachi Machi, yeah. Wow. Yeah, its nearest competitor is 124, which is uh, Shanghai 2 Dragon's Eye. That was Dizzy Worlds. Shall we depart from this world and take a look at another one?
1: Let's do it, yeah. Let's, uh, let's go to King Arthur's World, in fact. Who made this? Where did it come from?
0: Go ahead and give us the lowdown. Okay, well, this one was developed by Argonaut, who we're going to be talking about a lot more next time when we get into Star Fox. But this one was published by Jalico. Yeah, we're not going to go too much into Argonaut, just because we are probably going to be talking a lot about them in Star Fox, which is getting its own episode next time. But uh, I did come across an interesting article in Nintendo Life, uh, the website, from December 2018, about a remake that was planned for this game that was being developed for iOS and Android by two of the game's original creators. That article linked to a Medium article written by uh, one of the game's designers, Nick Halstead. And in that article, Nick talks about joining Argonaut Software when he was 18, a job that he'd uh, come to with the help of his friend, the man who would go on to be this game's managing director, Jeremy Sands, who's often credited and called Jez San. I'm going to quote Halstead here uh, from the Medium article, where he describes the strangely hostile environment he entered into. I could note a certain level of blockading around each desk as if to create a personal fortress. I found out later this arrangement was due to regular outbreaks of war amongst the three. These three were some of the greatest programming minds in video games. Between them invented new processor chipsets, 3D graphics libraries, and built games over the next 10 years that would sell tens of millions. Back then, big numbers. But in that room, they threw pretty much anything at each other. Things got so bad that one of them was actually hospitalized. I tell this story to give a sense of what it was like to work there, gloriously chaotic, but with the best minds and huge amounts of creativity. Uh. Uh, yeah, so I just want to say I really hate this attitude. I think that there's like, you know, a couple of things that like being a genius excuses you being a jerk or that being a jerk is indicative of genius. And mm-hmm. no, no, um, we need to knock that Crap off right now, folks. God, seriously. I know we've all been watching you know, over the last couple decades House and Sherlock and Rick and Morty and all this other crap where, well, he's a jerk, but he's so, so smart that it's okay. And no, all those people are jerks, okay? All those people are jerks. Yeah. P- push them all off a cliff. All of them. House, <laughs> off a cliff. Sherlock, off a cliff. Actually, they did that, so... <laughs> oh, they, that's true. They, yeah, yeah, As far as this game is concerned, he goes on in the article to talk about how his love of medieval fantasy stories like Lord of the Rings, combined with his work with the senescent dev kit, would lead to the creation of King Arthur's World. Uh, he created a simple program that would end up being the basis for this game, which uh, his friend uh, Jez, that was uh, Jeremy Sands... Uh, saw potential in it and was able to sell it to a publisher, uh, presumably Jaleco in this case. He ends the article promising more stories as development on the remake progresses. However, it seems that this would be his last piece in medium. If he ever wrote more about Argonaut or the remake, I didn't find it anywhere. Uh, I'm guessing his work as founder and CEO of Infosum kept him busy enough that he never finished it.
1: I just did a search for it on the, the app store and uh, that game definitely does not seem to have come out on the iOS app store. Okay. And the, in the intervening time, so yeah,
0: um, I just hope for the sake of his employees that he isn't still confusing violence and hostility with genius. As for Jez San, uh, he apparently is the founder of a company that makes gambling games. If I understood his LinkedIn profile correctly, so uh, okay, well done there, I guess. As if capitalism needed, you know, more evidence against it. People like this who are, you know, throwing things at each other in offices and and thinking that that's just the cost of doing business with genius uh, are now big, important CEOs and probably making good money. That's the kind of that's the kind of behavior capitalism rewards.
1: No, I it it honestly kind of reminds me a bit of um, a couple years ago. Eurogamer ran an article about the kind of fall of Lionhead. You know, the developer behind like the Black and White and Fable games, and basically like this was a company that had a very particular, very kind of laddish, frat boy sort of internal culture and then they joined microsoft and microsoft was like hey maybe don't send all these sexually explicit messages over the team chat to each other while you're working guys uh what does it say when microsoft's the voice of reason here (laughs) and, and just all these people being very upset that like microsoft basically like destroyed the company culture by making them act like adults while they were at work
0: Anyway, King Arthur's World. Um, Yeah. What a great premise and presentation. Um, Really cool gameplay idea. And all of that is just squandered with horrible, horrible controls. Uh, that is that is true. Um, you want to kind of explain a little bit about how this game actually works? Kind of a strategy game, sort of coming to a strategy type game by way of a 2D platformer. Kind of in the vein of Lemmings, you kind of play as King Arthur, but not really. You kind of play as everybody, basically. As King Arthur, you've got a certain amount of units. You know, again, I can keep comparing this to Lemmings. Lemmings with different skills. You've got your troops with different skills. You've got your knights who are just sort of your your brawlers. You've got shield men who can protect things and keep people from getting to certain units or from certain places. You've got engineers that can build structures that can let you climb, you know, other units climb things. You've got barrelmen who just leave explosives and you've got your archers who kind of throw arrows at things and and can attack from a distance. Also, I think there's wizards in there too. I didn't quite get that far (laughs) in any case. um, You know, you, you, you've got all these different units and you can send them across to their alter the terrain or, you know, build things over the terrain to make things more passable uh, defeat enemy units. The objective of the game is to get your main unit who is King Arthur from the starting point of the level to whatever the goal is, whether it's, you know, like the uh, the enemy king's throne or something else. I think it's usually like an enemy king's throne that you're kind of working towards.
1: Yeah, it's usually that. Sometimes it's like a thing of treasure or something. But King Arthur it starts out at one end of the level, um, where which is essentially the spawn point for all the units. Um, and then you have to use all those units, call them out, and have them do whatever their thing is in various places and various ways to get past obstacles. You also have to navigate them past, like, stage hazards, like, you know, pits that open and close or things that will kind of periodically fall down and crush them um, to get them where they need to go so that
0: eventually King Arthur can get where he needs to go. Yeah, so, I mean, all of this sounds fine, and it is fine. So, okay, I, I think the best way to kind of talk about the failures of this control scheme is to talk about these sorts of games and how control has been given to the player and, and, and how that works. So like in Lemmings, you have a cursor on the screen that allows you to not only browse around the entire map to get a good look at your surroundings, but also to let you select an individual Lemming and tell them what to do. In a game like Krusty's Funhouse, you have direct control over Krusty to manipulate the level to get the rats from one end of the stage to the other. This game kind of does a weird combination of those things in which there is no on-screen reticle that you have direct control over. Instead, you move the reticle from one unit to another so like if you have just king arthur on the screen which is you know how you're going to start every level you can use him to summon another unit and then you will have control of that unit or the leader of that unit if you have multiple units coming out at once like you typically do for the archers say But you can't just move a cursor around the screen freely. In order to like stop the units from moving forward, you have to press the D pad in the opposite direction that they are walking in while you have assumed control of them. Yeah, it's just a lot of steps to do something very to do something that should be as simple as just hey, don't walk off that cliff. You idiot, <laughs> right? I mean, it's basically a game that makes you always feel like you're
1: rubbing your belly and patting your head at the same time in just, like, the worst way. And it it really gets in the way of being able to appreciate these level designs or anything clever that you might be able to do with, like, you know, the strategy or figuring out the puzzles and it's just, it's just miserable. Like, it's just, it, it, it is such a shame because you can clearly see how all of the things in this game would be fun if the, the basic concept for the controls was something different. A cursor would have been fine. It occurs to me that even just having like really direct, like sort of platform game control over King Arthur would also be fine, you know? <laughs> like, if you just had that and then you could like pick up the units and move them around, there's so many different ways you could do this that would be better. But this is like kind of the worst of all possible worlds, basically, for it.
0: Worst of all possible King Arthur's worlds, am I right? Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that this control scheme is a Especially egregious given that they did implement mouse support in this game, but it's completely squandered here because you still don't have a cursor on the screen. You still control everything by jumping from one unit to another. If this game had a cursor like the way Lemmings does that just lets you, you know, click on the unit on a on a on the bottom of the screen in the menu to summon them and then click on them to activate them and then click where you want them to go. Yeah. If it was that simple... Honestly, like I think this game's premise is good enough. This could have been like this could have been in our top 30. The fact that they did it this way means like it's not going to come close to that. I just can't believe it. I can't believe they took such a cool idea and screwed it up this bad.
1: I mean, I was so intrigued by this game after we read about it in Nintendo Power. All the things that the Nintendo Power article says about this game are true, but with this control scheme, it's just miserable to play, and I, I don't know what else there is to say. It just, it just, it's just such a shame that it, it is it is so ruined by the really avoidable choices they made for the controls. It's not even a thing where, like, it's been Dizzy Worlds, which we were just talking about. I was like, well, I could see if you had a trackball for this. But, like, here... They definitely had access to the mouse, and it would have provided a very sensible alternate controls
0: game for this that they just didn't do. I can't believe if this was the way you were going to have the game control that you would even waste your time implementing mouse support. What's even the point? I'm, I'm sad for this game. I'm really sad for this one. Well, let's go over to the list and find a place for it. Yeah, so I mean, obviously we we talked about this in comparison to Lemmings and Krusty's Super Fun House, and I don't think this is going to be as high as either of those. Uh, where is Krusty's Fun House right now? Sixty four. This would go down from there, I think. Um, I'm trying to look for like another good comparison, but I, I just keep dropping lower. as I'm looking here.
1: Like, on the one hand, I could almost see making a comparison for something like Cool World, but I think that this game is a lot more
0: poorly served by the controls than cool world was yeah i think so too i don't know wing commander which maybe didn't have much business being on the super nintendo but like this game was made for the super nintendo specifically like this did not come out on anything else prince of persia also had like a lot of control trouble but you know i mean like we're still looking in the top 100 i don't even know if i if i'm feeling that i i think for a game that i had to reject so utterly over its
1: controls. I don't really think I would want to put it in the top 100.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, you know, we've got something like Doomsday Warrior at number 100 right now. It... Is this game really worse than Doomsday Warrior? You know, probably not, honestly. Doomsday Warrior is rough. I mean, yeah. So here's the thing. I mean, like, you can probably get over the poor controls in this game, and and once you get the hang of it, have fun with it. I just don't have the patience for that. I think the controls are so wonky that it's going to take a lot to get to that point. If you were actually going to, you know, say, hey, I'm going to spend the time with this game to actually get the controls down... Once you've got that, you're probably gonna have a pretty good time with it. I think the controls would probably always make this game more challenging than it than, than it was meant to be, maybe. Looking ahead and seeing some of the more complex maps in the game, like there's a lot of stuff going on in some of those later levels and Yeah. The idea that you have to kind of shift your perspective either by, you know, holding L or R to sort of scroll the map while everything is still going or just by jumping from unit to unit, you know, almost like you're a ghost possessing, you know, each unit. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Making the game more challenging and not in a fun way. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the fact is, it's probably possible to get over the controls and, like, get
1: used to them so you can play the game, but neither of us managed to do that.
0: Yeah, but I mean, granted, you know, that is sort of the the whole thing with the show. Yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, we play them briefly, judge them harshly, so you know, that, yeah, your experience might not be ours, especially if you decide to devote some time to it. So, yeah, I could give it the benefit of the doubt and put it above Doomsday Warrior, which really just does not have much content
0: at all. Like, it it doesn't function well, where, like, King Arthur's World, I think, functions well, they just mapped a crappy control scheme to it. They made bad choices, yeah. Which I think, you know, maybe puts it above something even like James Bond Jr. at 98? Mm, Probably true. True. Yeah, I, I know. What do you think is the ceiling for this? It might be Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally. I don't think I'd really put it
1: above that because I think that Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally, even though its controls are not great, I think there is some obvious craft there that means that that I can I can say you know well this game was trying. It's not successful really in a lot of ways because of its controls, which you know. Is a shame, but uh, I appreciate the effort. So kind of similar to this, but I do think that Road Runner's Death Valley Rally is ultimately just more, more playable <laughs> on those terms than, uh, than, than King Arthur's World.
0: Okay, so maybe this becomes our new ninety-seven between Road Death Valley Rally and Test Drive Two: The Duel.
1: That sounds good to me.
0: All right, so congratulations, King Arthur's World, number ninety-seven. We do really think highly of the stuff that they got right about this game, which was honestly like really everything else. Everything else about this game is pretty spot on. Like it, it's not mind blowing or anything, but it's exactly what it needs to be except for this clumsy control scheme. I mean, it's uh,
1: it's kind of like if you made a delicious cake, but you accidentally put salt in instead of sugar.
0: Yeah, like that one guy in the Great British Bake Off? Yeah,
1: like that one guy in the Great British Bake Off. And, um, you know, he got taken out in the first round because of that thing. So nobody wants to eat a salty cake.
0: Nope, nobody wants to eat a salty cake. Not even Paul Hollywood. And he's as salty as they come, am I right?
1: Yeah, that guy's a freak.
0: (laughs) 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 All right. Well, folks, I guess it's that time again. Now that we're done with the games, it is time to get serious.
1: to get serious.
0: Except that I don't actually really have anything today. I, I mostly just wanted to do that just to, to play the little musical thing. We have a musical chime now to warn you when we're getting serious. So if... You really, really, really don't want to hear politics stuff. You don't have to. Although, I mean, we did already kind of on capitalism today. So, you know, that's just going to
1: happen. That's just going to happen. I mean, we are who we are. We've got the perspectives we have. And, you know, part of why we do, just to, to say briefly, part of why we do the serious segment is is just to let people know kind of where we're we're coming from, you know, in like a very basic way, you know, because like... I, I don't know, for me personally, like, I always feel more comfortable, you know, engaging with content from from somebody when I understand their perspective. I don't want to be, like, kind of wondering about that. So, um, you know, that's part of why we do this, and also because you know, we we hope that for whatever kind of thing we're talking about we can help sort of maybe crystallize what your thoughts are about it too um by by letting you know kind of how we're we're reacting to something and we also understand that like even if you completely agree with us you maybe don't want to hear somebody talk about something, you know, right then. So, you know, if that's you, uh, you know, we wanted to put this musical sting in in the first a, a, at the start of it just so that you know uh that, you know, this is this is, you know, the time for that now. And if you need to skip ahead, you know, if you just, you know, your battery's drained, you can't engage with it right then, we understand.
0: Yeah. And I also think, you know, that as a community, um a lot of areas in in gaming have not done a good job of keeping out the really bad actors and i think that that has allowed a lot of really bad stuff to happen through the games community so we want to make absolutely clear that yeah this isn't the space for that and you know i'm leaning like i don't really have a lot of desire to cultivate a community of our own but You know, if anything like that is going to happen, we're absolutely not okay with. The homophobes, the transphobes, the misogynists, the racists.
1: You do have to be very clear about that, because otherwise you can't assume.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was a time when maybe I might have, you know, naively assumed that that is the default position of most people. But if anything's become clear over these last few years, that is not the case. So yeah, we're just going to lay it out there so that there can't be any kind of confusion about who we are or who we want to be. That's all I've got for today. (laughs)
1: Yeah, me too. Um, I don't have anything else, but um, we hope that you all enjoyed this and that you join us next week as we talk uh, a lot about Star Fox. We'll talk about Argonaut. We'll talk about the Super FX chip. Uh, we'll we'll talk about Japanese shrines, I think. Uh, and we hope you join us next time. And uh, until then, uh, I'm Emmy Zero. Yeah, and I'm Steampunk Link. Play it loud.
0: Our intro-outro song is How Now, Brown Cow by TechnoAxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at TechnoAxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X E.com.